have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3 is where we're going to be this morning. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 13 of Ephesians chapter 3. And in fact, I'm going to read that right here at the outset. So as you're turning there, I will begin reading. I'll be reading from the, the English Standard Version, the ESV. Um, but if, if you have a different version, you should be able to follow along. And there's always Bibles in the pew back in front of you. If you don't have one, please use that. We have a whole stack on the back in that back area. Take one of those home. If you don't have a Bible, that um, it's yours. We'd love, love for you to take that. Ephesians chapter 3, I'm going to begin reading in verse 1 and read through verse 13. So follow along as I read. Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. For this reason, I... Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I've written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit." This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you which is your glory. Let, let's pray as we begin this morning. Father, we come as those who have benefited from Paul's ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. And so we have been recipients of the unsearchable riches of Christ, the good news of the gospel, that we are joint heirs, that we are adopted, that we have been united to Jesus and welcomed into your family. And so as we read this passage, as we study these, these verses, Lord, would you remind us of the gospel truths that are ours in Christ Jesus by your Spirit. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, as we work through these 13 verses, there are three main points. Our, our outline is, is going to be divided into three main points. And so we're going to see kind of the, the front end and the, and the back end. The, the first verse and the last verse of our section are Paul's reference to him as a prisoner. So we'll see Paul the prisoner... Then second, we'll, we'll see in verses 2 through 7 of chapter 3, the mystery re revealed to Paul. So Paul's going to talk about how, how this mystery was revealed to him. And then, then finally, in the third section, we'll see how the mystery has been revealed through Paul. So it was revealed to him so that it would be revealed through him. And we see that in verses 8 through 12. And as we go through this passage, we're going to see that Paul's imprisonment is a potential discouragement for his readers. So he's writing to these Ephesians, this, this mainly Gentile audience, and, and he opens in verse 1 in reference to his imprisonment, 
And he closes in verse 13, and he's encouraging them, don't be discouraged that I'm in prison. And the way he encourages them is by showing them that his imprisonment is a direct result of his God-given purpose. In essence, what Paul's going to say to encourage these Gentiles, he's going to say, I've been called by God to preach the gospel to the Gentiles to make known this mystery, and as a result of my ministry, I am in prison. But don't forget, Ephesians, that I'm in prison for making known the gospel to the Gentiles. And so what a good reason to be in prison. So don't lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is actually the reason that you're Christians. And so in seeking to encourage them, he reminds them of the same things that he's just told them in chapter 2, which if you are with us last week, chapter 2 was very much the, the mystery of this gospel. So let's look there, verse 1 and verse 13. Paul, the prisoner. Now to, to understand Paul's imprisonment, right, I'm going to summarize, I think I have the reference there, Acts 21, verses 17 through 36. That's that's kind of what I'm going to summarize to you here briefly, but, but in this, this, this section of Acts, it's near the end of Paul's um, free ministry as a, as a free man, and he goes and he visits James, who James was a Jewish apostle in Jerusalem, and Paul visits James and other leaders in Jerusalem, and Paul says, hey, I've been having so much success. God has been working wonders among the Gentiles. So many Gentiles are receiving the Spirit, and they're getting saved, and so Paul's reporting that to the to the, the Christians, the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. And they rejoiced that Paul's ministry was being effective among the Gentiles. But then they bring up the thousands of Jewish people that have become Christians. And there's a problem. So these leaders in Jerusalem are telling Paul, they say, listen, thousands of Jewish people have become Christians, and there's this rumor going around that you, in your ministry in Gentile lands, when you preach to Jews that are gathered in the Gentile lands... You're telling those Jews that they, they cannot keep the law anymore. They must, they must forsake Moses and not keep the law. So, so do, you, do you see that the, the Jews in Jerusalem are saying, hey, that, that Gentile apostle, yeah, that's fine. What do we want to do among the Gentiles? But he's actually going to the Jews who are living in these Gentile places, and he just, he's telling them they must forsake Moses. And these Jewish Christians are zealous for the law, and so they're saying that's a problem. Now, of course, Paul's not doing that. He, he told the Gentiles, you, you must not submit to Moses. But, but he told the Jews, hey, if you want to voluntarily keep these customs, these Jewish customs, that's fine. That's fine. That, that is on your conscience. If you, if you want to keep doing these things, if you want to circumcise your kids, that's fine. He's, he's not saying you must forsake it, but he is making clear you're not saved, you're not right with God by keeping these, but, but you're Jewish. That's your heritage. If you want to do it, you can do it. That's what Paul is actually saying, but they're telling him, there, there, this rumor going around is that Paul is telling even the Jews, hey, being Jewish means nothing to you now. Forsake everything. And so the Jews there in Jerusalem with James and his, his fellow leaders, they want to clear up this confusion. So they say, hey, Paul, why don't you participate in this Jewish custom? Why don't you, why don't you participate in this Nazarite vow? Some of, the, some of the Jewish Christians that are with you, why don't you participate? So then everyone will see, oh, wait, Paul, Paul still keeps these Jewish customs. There's no problem. And so Paul goes along with the plan. And so some of, some of the, the fellow travelers who are Jewish, they, they enter into this, 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 this ritual, this vow, and then they, they, they go through this process of cleansing. And then one day, while, while Paul is in the temple, he's observing the Jewish customs, some Jews from Asia, it says, come in and they bring false charges against Paul. So, so they, they, they see Paul in the temple, 
And they assume, right, they don't see the, these Gentiles with them, but they assume, oh, I've seen Gentiles with Paul. They must be with him in the temple. So they start stirring up the crowds. Hey, this man, Paul, he, he's teaching everyone everywhere against the Jews. He, he's bad-mouthing the Jews. He hates the law. He hates the temple. This is the one who's stirring up all of this chaos, he, he, he has even, they say, defiled the temple this day by bringing Gentiles here. Though they never saw it, so though Paul wouldn't do that, they charge him with bringing Gentiles into the temple, which of course was false, right? This is fake news, fake news. This is not true, but they are stirring up the Jews there, and everyone believes it. And so they seize Paul, and they drag him out of the temple, and they're going to kill him. They, they hate him so much, they're going to kill him. And it's not until the, the, the Roman rulers there in the area, the centurions, hear about, wait a minute, the, the Jews are attacking this guy, and they come and they rescue Paul. And so they save him from being killed by the Jews, and this is the, the start of, of Paul's lengthy legal process. So he's going to be transferred from city to city, and he appeals. He says, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a Roman citizen, I, I, can, I have rights. And, and so he's going to appeal and appeal, and, and eventually leads him to Rome. But it starts right with his preaching of the gospel to the Gentiles, and people say, hey, that's the problem. And so in a lot of ways, Paul was in prison for his ministry to the Gentiles. So that's the context here. So as he's writing to the Ephesians, he's in prison because of what happened there in Acts 21. He's, he's been in prison for his ministry to the Gentiles. And so he's writing to these Ephesians, and as he, as he does, he's reminded that his identity as a prisoner is directly tied to his minister, to his ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. So verse 3, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, he wants to pray for them and tell them what he prays for them, but, but he gets sidetracked here. So if you flip over in, in verse 4, or no, in verse 14 of chapter 3, for this reason, this is my prayer for you. This is what he means to say here in verse 1. When he says, I, Paul, a prisoner, that word prisoner sets him off and says, wait a minute, I, I'm a prisoner because of my ministry to the Gentiles. Let me encourage you now before I tell you what I'm praying for you. And so that's his section. He's seeking to encourage them. And so as Paul's writing, he's reminded the very reason that I'm under house arrest, that, I, that I'm imprisoned here, is because of my ministry to the Gentiles. So Paul is writing to the Ephesians. As he's writing, his status as a prisoner could potentially discourage the Gentiles in Ephesus, especially if you, if you look back to uh, Acts chapter 21, it tells us that, you remember when the Jews charged Paul for bringing a Gentile into the temple, that the man whose name they charged him with bringing into the temple was Trophimus, who was the Ephesian. And so it was Trophimus the Ephesian, that was, that was the fake news subject, says, hey, Trophimus was in the temple today, and Paul brought him. And so surely they think one of our own Gentile men has led to him being imprisoned. We're so sorry, Paul. We're so sorry. And Paul wants to say, no, no, it's a lot bigger than what you think. He doesn't want him to be, in, be discouraged. And so he, he breaks off from his, his prayer for them and explains to them what's happened. He wants them to know why I'm a prisoner. It will not do for Paul to dismissively say, hey, I'm a prisoner, but don't worry about it. I'm okay. I'm fine. Everything's fine. Don't worry about it. Instead, Paul locates his imprisonment in the eternal plan of God that's been realized in Christ Jesus. So Paul sees imprisonment, his imprisonment in the big plan, God's eternal plan, which is another way of Paul simply saying, I'm not here because I got caught preaching the gospel of the Gentiles. That's not why I'm here. I'm here because God has ordained the preaching of the gospel to the Gentiles. And my imprisonment is part of that eternal plan. In fact, in, in, in his writing to uh, the Philippians, it's assumed he's, he's in the same prison state writing 
to the Ephesians and to the Philippians, but when he's writing to the Philippians, do you remember what he says? He says, my imprisonment has actually proved to advance the gospel. So the, the whole guard is heard. So it's actually better that I'm in prison because now all these, all these guards are hearing the gospel and they're no, they know why I'm imprisoned. And so Paul's perspective regarding God's sovereign working in time and space and history makes all the difference. He is a prisoner, he is suffering, but Paul locates his suffering within the eternal plans of God and is actually encouraged in the midst of his suffering, which is why, look down at verse 13 of chapter 3, he closes this section by saying, I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. In other words, don't be discouraged. I am suffering, but it's part of God's plan, and, and the gospel is advancing. I'm your apostle, Gentiles. I'm in prison because I am your apostle. And so Paul ceases imprisonment from resulting from preaching the gospel. So he turns his attention to next. Look there at our second head, heading, verses 2 through 7, the mystery revealed to Paul. Paul turns his attention to next. The reason for his imprisonment is directly connected to the mystery that was revealed to him and his relationship to the Gentiles. So look there in verse 2. Paul begins, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given me to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. So Paul says, surely you've heard that my calling as an apostle is to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. I mean, that, that was Paul's identity from the beginning. He was called to be a, an apostle to the Gentiles. He was a recipient of God's grace in order to reveal the mystery of the gospel to the Gentiles. And so Paul says, I'm a steward of God's grace for your benefit. God has chosen me for your good. And this mystery was revealed to Paul. God intervened in Paul's life on the road to Damascus when he was still Saul. And so he was, he was arrested there, not, not, not by guards, but by God. And the mystery was revealed to Paul. He was blinded, and there in that Damascus Road experience, when Saul became Paul, Paul was called and commissioned as an apostle. And right there in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 9, when, when, when God tells this man, Ananias, hey, go get Paul, who was once Saul, go get him, Ananias says, no way. He used to kill Christians and arrest them. I'm not going to go to him. And the Lord says to Ananias in, in verse 15 of chapter 9, remember this is the very beginning of Paul's ministry, the Lord says to Ananias, go, Here's why you're going to go, Ananias, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles. And so from the very beginning, Paul had a unique role in the spread of the gospel to the Gentiles. That was his purpose, his lot in life. And so the mystery that has been revealed to Paul is something that he's already written about briefly, he says, which was at the end of chapter 2, that whole section that we looked at last week. That was the mystery he made clear. This is the mystery. And the mystery is, and he, he repeats it here in verse 6, the mystery is, point blank, Gentiles are fellow heirs. Gentiles are in. The mystery is that the Gentiles are members of the same body and partakers of the same promises of the Jewish people and anyone else that believe in Jesus. And so the mystery is that now there's one new man. Jesus has initiated or instituted a new people. And so ethnicity plays no role anymore. It's Jesus and your identity to him that makes you right with God and, and, and forms this new people. And that's the mystery. The mystery is that it's not ethnic anymore. It's not only a Jewish thing. It's anyone. That's the mystery. And Paul says when you read this, you'll, you'll, understand my, you'll get my understanding of the mystery. You can perceive my insight 
which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations. So this is something that wasn't as clearly known as it is now that God has revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by his spirit. In other words, Paul recognizes that what he proclaims is new in a sense. It's new. It's something that was, was hidden before. It wasn't, it wasn't crystal clear, but now has been fully revealed. It is crystal clear now because God has revealed it through his holy apostles and prophets. It's been fully revealed in the coming of Christ. It's been revealed by Christ, through Christ. Christ has made known this mystery. That's what Paul's message was. And what Christ had made known is that the one new man consisted of Jews and Gentiles. The, the household of God, God's people, were made up of Jews and Gentiles. One's relationship to Christ is what, is what made one part of God's family. And so Paul, as, as the apostle of the Gentiles and the first steward of this mystery, Paul had the privilege of unfolding its wonder to his readers. So he could go to Ephesus and say, let me tell you what was once an only Jewish thing, Jesus has, has opened it for the whole world, so you can now know God through Jesus. Though you, didn't, you don't know anything, you don't even know who Abraham is, that doesn't matter anymore. If you know Jesus, you're in because Jesus is the difference maker. And that's what Paul, that was the, the, the crux of Paul's message as he went to the Gentiles. The two are made one in Christ. God has accomplished peace. And so Paul, as he goes among the Gentiles, he proclaims a law-free gospel. You don't need Moses. That doesn't make you right with God. This law-free gospel is applicable to Gentiles as well as to Jews. Gentiles formerly kept apart from Jews by the, the, this barrier, this dividing wall that we looked at last week. They were now able to benefit from God's saving act in Christ and to be incorporated in Him along with the Jews. This was the mystery. Access to the Father granted to both Jew and Gentile. Anyone who would believe in Jesus was now part of God's family, God's people. And so in verse 7, Paul says, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. So Paul's role in the proclamation of the gospel could only be rightly understood as, as a gift of God's grace. And so Paul says, my, my right or my privilege of being a minister of the gospel, it, it's God's grace that I am a minister. It's God's grace, it's God's kindness that I'm able to do what I'm doing. Just, just think about who I was before Christ. It wasn't as though Paul was preparing to be an apostle of Christ. If you know Paul's story, that wasn't the story. It was the opposite. Paul was persecuting Christ and his people. He was imprisoning the Christians. As one commentator notes, Paul's calling to be an apostle to the Gentiles, or missionary to the Gentiles, was not of his own doing. He had no role in it. Rather, it was wholly due to the gracious, sovereign intervention of God. Paul says, I was made a minister. I didn't make myself a minister. God called me and made me a minister of this gospel. It was God's plan, God's initiative. And notice the last phrase there in verse 7, this calling, God's grace was given to me, Paul says, by the working of his power. And so Paul's life has been transformed. He was once a persecutor, but now he's, he's a proclaimer. And it's God's power that has transformed his life. And Paul's divine purpose was a result of God's powerful working that has come to him through the Spirit. Remember all the way back in chapter 1. Nothing short of God's mighty intervention could transform Paul's life the way that it was transformed. He was a minister of the gospel because God's power had intervened. Paul's life and purpose had been transformed, which I, I think leads us to an application from this, this first section. And that application is simply for us as believers to note Paul's purpose in life. 
Notice Paul's purpose in life. While, yes, on one hand, Paul's calling and purpose was unique. Right? Hopefully you hear that. He was the apostle to the Gentiles. He was uniquely called. However, on the other hand, I think it's right for us to be challenged by Paul's single-minded devotion. I mean, Paul was devoted to preaching the gospel to those who didn't know. And, and if we're honest with ourselves, I mean, which one of us can honestly say that we are as committed as we should be to the proclamation of the gospel to those who don't know Christ? Right? Raise your hand. Well, don't do it. <laughs> right? right? We don't do it. We're not as committed as we ought to be. That's not the top of our priority. We don't, we don't arrange our lives and order our lives and our days around the gospel being preached to non-Christians. And it, that ought to be. So we ought to be convicted and challenged by Paul's purpose in life. Paul wanted others to come to know the unsearchable riches of Christ. Paul knew something that others didn't know. And that reality compelled him to live and to act. And so Paul says, my purpose in life is a minister of the gospel. And that purpose is a gift of God's grace. And that purpose was given to him and sustained in him by the working of God's power. And so while none of us are called to be an apostle in the same way that Paul was, we are all, as Christians, called to be ministers of the gospel. If you're a Christian, that's your job title, a minister of the gospel. Our lives ought to point to the one main thing. We ought to ask God to give us a passion and a commitment to this person, to this purpose. I mean, one convicting question that I'm asking myself in light of verse 7 in this is, is in what ways is my life sustained by God's grace and power. Notice he says that, yeah, it's God's grace that gave me this ministry, but it's also God's power that's sustaining me in this ministry. And so I'm asking, what, what ways is my life, as a resident of Hampton, as a parent of young kids, as, as a soccer assistant coach, in what ways is my life sustained by God's grace and power? I mean, Paul's life was a testimony to God's sustaining power. He's writing from prison saying, don't worry about me. He knows that God is going to sustain him. I mean, think about Paul's ministry. Shipwrecked, given up for dead, beaten, stoned, over and more and more and more. All these things Paul endured because of his purpose, his calling, his ministry. And his, his life testified, God's power is enough for me. I'm on mission. I have a purpose. Well, I'm not saying that any of us should expect to endure these kinds of things. I am saying that the Christian life Committed to being a minister of the gospel is a life that displays dependence on God's grace and power. And so we see, I think here, Paul's example serves as an inspirational model and an instructive pattern, namely that the grace of God that we have experienced in our call, in our, our called to be Christians, will be sufficient for us as we live as Christians, just as it was for Paul. The same grace and power that called and sustained Paul through his life is the same grace and power that called and will sustain us. So I think we can learn from Paul here in his purpose. Well, then second, let's look at the, the second point, verses 8 through 12, or our final point, our third point, sorry. Third point, the mystery revealed through Paul, verses 8 through 12. The final point, as Paul transitions in this final section, it's apparent he's taken aback by the reality that he is God's chosen instrument for preaching to the Gentiles. And so though he is the very least of all the saints, God called him to be a preacher or an apostle to the Gentiles. God called him to preach about this one new man that is being formed in Christ. And as Paul reflects, he's humbled and amazed that he would have such a privilege. I mean, it is a privilege. Look, look there in verse 8. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles, the unsearchable riches of Christ. 
And so this phrase, the least of all the saints, is, is similar to, to phrases that we find in, in two other places in Paul's letter. So in, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul uses the phrase, I'm, I'm the least of the apostles. So in, in 1 Corinthians 15, he's talking about the resurrection. He said, and, and then he appeared to me, and one untimely born, the, the least of all the apostles, I actually saw the resurrected Jesus. And then here in Ephesians 3, he's the least of all the saints. But then in, in 1 Timothy 1, he calls himself the least or the foremost of sinners. He said, I'm the least of the sinners, but God's grace was shown to me. And so in all these instances, this, this phrase, and, and if you notice, it, it's in a seemingly increased manner. So first, I'm, I'm least of the apostles, then I'm, I'm the least of all of the saints, and then I'm the least of all the sinners, right? The, the group is expanding. But Paul, as, as he's writing in all these situations, he's deeply conscious of his own unworthiness, which means he's deeply conscious of Christ's overflowing grace that's been shown to him. It's as if at every turn in life, Paul is left wondering, oh, why me? Why, why would God choose me? Why would he be so kind to me? Why would I give the privilege of being in prison for preaching to the Gentiles? Why me? As a former persecutor of his church and now a minister of his gospel, why me? And so Paul, here in Ephesians, his point is that even the least of all the saints, so he's writing to Gentiles, non-Jews, he's saying, oh, you're even better than me. I'm, I'm least, I'm lower than you. But even to me, the least of all the Christians, I've been a recipient of God's great grace. I can't believe that God would be so kind to me. That, that's Paul's attitude. His call and his ministry were given, and they were a result of God's grace. And he, he's called, he, he says here in verse 8, to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ, or the unfathomable wealth that's found in Christ to the Gentiles. And notice, as he does that, verse 9 he brought to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. And so verses 8, 9, and 10, are all, they're all connected here. Their logic flows. And in all three verses, Paul is expounding what his ministry and his calling have entailed. So in, let, let me tell you what, what grace given to me has looked like. So in verse 8, I was given grace to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, just like we just talked about. So, so I've been called to preach this gospel to the Gentiles. But then verse 9 as I preach this gospel to the Gentiles, it actually reveals or brings to light the plan of the mystery that had been hidden for ages. And so as Paul is preaching this gospel to the Gentiles, the Gentiles are actually putting their faith in Jesus, and the Gentiles are, are receiving the Spirit and the, the mark of being God's people, and they're being included in God's people, the household. And as that happens, the mystery is made plain, which is simply, these Gentiles are just as much Christians, people of God, as the Jews are. And so as he's preaching the gospel, the mystery is being made plain, which is there's, there's one new man. It's not Jewish anymore. It's not Gentile, but it's Christ. It's a new people. It's not about ethnicity or social class or gender or anything else. This one new man, this one new body, this people of God consists of those who are in Christ. And so as Paul preaches the gospel and people repent and believe, they are, they are made part of the church, the body of Christ, the the people of God. And Paul's point is that the actual outworking of this process is part of the eternal plan of God. This is what God designed. This is how God planned for this to happen. In other words, this God who these Gentiles have come to know, this is not just one of the many gods of Ephesus. Paul says this is the God of creation. This is the God who created everything, not, not, not Artemis, one of the other idols that you worship. This is the God who created all things. 
And this God who created you, Ephesians, and set a plane in motion, set a plane into motion by which you would become part of the family of God, that you'd be adopted as members of his family, full members in Christ. He says, this has been the eternal plan of God. And God's intention for this eternal plan, according to verse 10, was to display his manifold wisdom, or, or, or to display his many-splendored wisdom. And he did it, this display is for all to see. And so, so do you see this process in Paul's role and the significance of his relationship with the Gentiles and Gentile inclusion? So Paul's called to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ to Gentiles, which led to the mystery being revealed because the Gentiles are actually included. They, they become Christians, which then le- leads ultimately to the forming of the church, and that's through this new people, through the people of God, the manifold wisdom of God is on display for, for all to see. Now, it's for the whole world to see, but Paul here doesn't refer to the whole world. He says to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And so, so just think about what Paul's saying. As, as this new man is formed in Christ, as this new people is coming forward, this people, this new community that's composed of Jew and Gentile, is to serve throughout the entire universe as an object lesson of the wisdom of God. The church is a display of God's wisdom for the world to see and of all the principalities and the rulers to see. Or as one pastor put it, the church is exhibit A of the wisdom of God to the heavenly rulers and authorities. And he continues, it's as if God is saying to all the heavenly powers, Satan himself included, The emphasis is here on on, on evil powers, but it's as if God is saying to all the heavenly powers, Behold, exhibit A, here are my people. They are people from every tribe and tongue and nation. They've come from every conceivable background. Some of their cultures and nations actually war against one another. Some of their cultures and nations hate one another. Some of these people have absolutely nothing in common with one another from the standpoint of personality and society and economic status. And look at them, exhibit A. In Christ, I have brought them together as a family. And they love one another. They love my word. They love me. I have heaped on them inexhaustible riches in Jesus Christ. Behold, exhibit A, principalities and rulers, as a demonstration of my wisdom, my salvation, my redemption, my grace, my glory. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? That the church is a display of the vast, manifold wisdom of God. Paul is saying that the church, the body of Christ, the people of God, is a teaching tool to the heavenly powers. I mean, think about the, 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 the role that the church is assigned here. It's a lofty and a cosmic role. The church's very existence is making known how great God's plan of salvation is, both to people and to powers, which gives unparalleled importance to the church. I mean, just imagine, right, the the heavenly realms, what's going on there, just when the heavenly powers thought that they had destroyed God's plan, right, their evil conspiracy, just when they thought their conspiracy against the Messiah, the Christ, had been successful, we killed him. We got it just when they thought they had won. Up rises Jesus and with him this church. His body, his people, his representatives on the earth telling these principalities and the powers as a result of the death, 
came the resurrection, which came the church, his people. And so here is the church united, both Jew and Gentile, in Jesus Christ. And the very existence of this unified church, the existence of this one new body, declares to these hostile powers that their apparent triumph was brief. The existence of Christ's church is a display of the divine wisdom to these hostile powers. God's plan is a plan they would never have dreamed of. And that's his wisdom on display. And all of this, look back there at verse 11, was according to the eternal purpose that God has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So Paul maintains his insistence on the centrality of Christ to God's eternal plan. God's eternal plan has now been realized. It's come now, realized in the incarnation of Jesus, the death, the burial, the resurrection of this Son of God. This eternal plan, God's eternal plan, Paul has made clear, includes Jews and Gentiles being adopted, being brought near to God through Jesus Christ. So that the person that is in Christ, whether Jew or Gentile, has access to God. Notice the language, access, boldness, right? Whether you're Jew or Gentile, if you're in Jesus, you have access to God. You have boldness. You have this relationship where you can approach him. This relationship is based not on ethnicity or performance or anything else, but on Christ in union with him. And so Paul closes out verse 13, don't, don't be discouraged that I'm imprisoned. Don't lose heart. We're not losing in this game. Be encouraged. Your existence is evidence that we're winning. As a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of these Gentiles, Paul sets before them the eternal purpose of God. He says, you Gentiles have a place in this purpose. And I have a place in this purpose. And so for me to be Christ's prisoner is an honorable status. And I wouldn't have it any other way. He wants them to be encouraged. And that's how he closes. And so let me, I have, I have three final questions points of application. We'll move through these quickly, but just three, three points here from, from this section that I think can apply. First, I think we see that the, the gospel is good news for all people. I think that this is over and over again in Ephesians. The gospel is for all people. No one is too far gone. The reach of God's grace in the gospel is infinite. So no one is too far gone. The, the gospel is good news for anyone. Saul became Paul. And so so don't be fooled into believing that there is anyone for whom this gospel is not powerful enough to save. No one is beyond reach of God's grace in the gospel. So do you have kids or grandkids? Neighbors? People that you think there's no hope for them? This gospel says otherwise. There's always hope. The gospel is for all people. So so, so be encouraged as you seek to minister the gospel to those you love and care about. But, but if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. If, you're not, if you're not, you haven't been reconciled to Christ, if you haven't put your faith in Jesus and turned from your sin, you should hear this too. You're not too far gone. I don't care what you've done, where you've come from, what you've said. You're not too far gone. There are no qualifications. You don't clean yourself up and say, okay, now I'm presentable. No one is presentable, no matter what they look like on the outside. No matter what their life looks like, no matter how much they seem to have it together, no one is good enough. It's not like we apply for membership and then God says, well, wait, let me get back to you. Right? That's, that's bad. 
When we, confess, when we turn from our sin and put our faith in Jesus upon our faith and repentance, we are accepted, forgiven, adopted, part of God's family. And so if you're here not a Christian, hear that this morning. There's, there's hope for you. There's hope for you. Jesus offers you hope. So the call of this passage is, is trust in Christ. Next point of application, I think we see the centrality of the church to God's eternal plan. I mean, we see here, especially near the end of this passage, that Paul locates the creation of the church as part of God's eternal plan. I mean, he sees it from start to finish. The church, this mystery, is part of God's plan. So, so we cannot view the church as a secondhand thought. It's not as though God says, oh, my plan's messed up. Let me, let me take the gospel to the Gentiles. No, the Gentiles were always part of the plan. The church, the body of Christ, consisting of Jews and Gentiles, is the whole point of the gospel. The, the coming of Jesus was for this purpose, that Jew and Gentile would all, that every nation would be reconciled to God in Christ, that he might have one people, one church, one bride united by faith in Jesus. And so this was God's eternal plan. It wasn't, wasn't a plan B. God's plan was always meant for all people. This is why Paul, remember all the way back in chapter 1, can say to the Gentile readers, God chose you before the foundation of the world because his plan and his salvation included you Gentiles separate from Israel. It included you coming to faith in Jesus. The church is part of God's eternal plan. Which in our last point, which is related, we see the nature of the church or, or the, the witness of the church, the essence of the church, which is unity. I mean, that, that's the point here. The whole purpose of the gospel is that there might be one united people. The church universal and church local must be a manifestation of unity. By its very nature, the church is unified. And that's part of what the church is. It is one people. So, so universal, yes, but local too. Did you know that our local church is a manifestation of the universal church? And so we ought to exhibit here in this local assembly what is true of the universal church. And so for, for us, this means that this local assembly must be characterized by unity. Unity in fellowship, unity in purpose, unity in spirit. If we are not marked by unity as Fox Hill Road Baptist Church, we are not a church. Or at least not the church that God designed us to be. God's church is to be united. And so the application for every member is simply to ask, how am I contributing to the unity of Fox Hill Road Baptist Church? Did you know if you're a member here, you're called to commit and contribute to the unity here? It's easy for us to contribute to the disunity. That's easy. That's not God's purpose for the church. A divided church, a split church, sends an anti-gospel message to the watching world. The gospel unites in a way that nothing else can. And so if the one place where unity is supposed to be solid is divided, well, so much for your Jesus. He can even keep you people together. And so we as members must intentionally contribute to unity here. It doesn't just happen. It isn't just coincidental. It has to be worked for and achieved and maintained. And so if you're a member here, I would just ask you this week, Consider, spend time with the Lord asking, what can I do? How can I contribute to the unity of this church? If you can't think of anything, come talk to me. Let we, let's talk about it together because every member is called to contribute to the unity of this body. And so I want us as members, 
of Fox Hill Road Baptist Church to be members of a church who are unified. Unified to Christ by faith and then unified to one another in love. That's, that's God's call for us as a church. Let's, let's pray as we close.